When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Tim Franks. I'm chairing the debate. Um, Wonderful to see the auditorium packed. Um, I have to say that when I was sent through the final wording for this debate, I thought how appropriate it was, not just because it was interestingly worded, but because it was all in capitals. Um, Israel is destroying itself with its settlement policy. If settlement expansion continues, Israel will have no future. I know from my um, three and a half years reporting from the region and the abuse I'm still getting from my broadcasting that there are few subjects which lend themselves to such shouty certainty and loudly dogmatic, diametric opposition as Israel and the Palestinians. And I dare say a, a few of you will have come here tonight already stirred by this provocatively titled motion. Yes, you'll say Israel's settlement policy is fabulously self-defeating, given that a Palestinian state is in Israel's best self-interest. It undermines Israel's own institutions, its sacred institutions, its army, its respect for the judiciary. It's budget-drainingly expensive, and it increases international isolation and tests friends beyond patience. Or, perhaps, you'll say Israel, the Jewish state, is actually only establishing Jewish homes in areas that are historically, traditionally Jewish. A Jewish settlement is actually the West's outpost against militant Islam. They're not facts on the ground, but they're questions to be answered in any future negotiations. And how about if 
the left was right with all their gleamingly obvious arguments, why are they doing so spectacularly badly in the opinion polls? All I ask is that as you listen to our top-notch panel tonight, uh, unclog your ears, challenge your preconceptions, dare yourself only to make up your minds when you've heard all of our speakers. So let's hear all of our speakers. Um, first of all, speaking for the motion is William Seacard. William is a founder and chairman of Forward Thinking, an NGO which works with the leadership of all parties on both sides of the divide in the Israel-Palestine conflict. In particular, Forward Thinking has built a close relationship with the right-wing parties in the Israeli government coalition and with Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, the West Bank, Damascus, and the diaspora. William. Thank you very much. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, uh, I'm so glad Tim said what he said, because um, uh, I was going to say that at the beginning as well. Essentially, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict provokes very, very strong opinions. And I suppose of all the issues facing the world, few will stimulate quite such a level of intensity in public debate as this one. So I'm going to ask you tonight to try for a moment to cast aside your uh, pre-held opinions, whatever they may be, pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, pro-neither, pro-both, um, and just try for a moment to put the, 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 that aside, because I'm going to try and argue this motion as well as I can in, in a non-political way, uh, partly because I know Palestinians on the panel, partly because I'm not an Israeli and the other three people on the panel are. I'm just a Brit with the temerity to have a view. And um, uh, also because my job in conflict resolution requires me not to take sides, but just to try and be pragmatic and to try and identify the genuine obstacles to peaceful progress. I'm going to argue tonight that Israel's settlement policy is deeply destructive to its own future for a number of reasons. First, by pursuing its policy of settling what is now over half a million Israeli citizens in the West Bank on land deemed by the international community to belong to the Palestinians, Israel is making the world and even its own allies believe that it has no genuine interest in making peace with the Palestinians. Secondly, as a result of this settlement policy, Israel's support in the international community is weakening. And it's leading to a, the expression delegitimization of Israel and, and isolation of Israel. And I fear ultimately onto a path of its own destruction. Finally, I'm going to argue that even if Israel wanted to redress the situation at a future date as part of a peace agreement, the larger the number of settlements built and settlers settled beyond the so-called 1967 borders, the harder it will be for any Israeli government to persuade its citizens to withdraw from them. But let's start at the beginning with some maps. I always find it helpful to look at maps um, as a way of illustrating what's been going on. I'm sorry, it's hard for you to see up there and turn your back. But the map on the left-hand side, the first map, uh, represents Palestine as it was under the British Mandate which uh, uh, covers the whole of what is now uh, 
the modern Israel and the occupied territories. The second map is what the UN proposed as the partition plan lines that would form the Israeli and the proposed Arab state, or Jewish and Arab state, as they called them in those days. And the white bit was proposed for the state of Israel, and the yellow bit, or brown, whichever you like to call it, uh, was proposed to be the Arab state. The third map gives you an idea of what actually happened after the British withdrew and after the 1948 War of Independence. And uh, the one before would have given Israel, I think, about 54, 55% of of the land and and the Arabs about 45%. After the 1948 War of Independence, that gave roughly 78% of the land to the Israelis and 22% to the Palestinians. The Palestinians... In the West Bank, you can see on the right-hand side of the two yellow bits, the left-hand side is the Gaza Strip. And the idea would be, in the event of an Arab state, that you'd have some kind of road or railway or something that would connect the two so that Palestinians could get from one one part of the territory to the other. And the final map on the right-hand side is roughly where we are today in terms of the yellow bits are where the Palestinians live and the white bits are where the um, Israelis live. Um, This is a map of the West Bank, and the West Bank is where the settlements we're talking about tonight are. Um, You can see Jerusalem sort of quite low low down on the map. Uh, So to the left of these yellow bits is the state of Israel, and the the rest of what you're seeing is is the West Bank. Uh, The brown bits on the West Bank are where Israelis uh, have control, and uh, the blue bits are the settlements. The brown lines are the roads which connect them all up. And the white, sorry, white, bit, white is a sort of strange color, but sort of creamy color, are the bits where the Palestinians live. And as you can see, because of these r- roads and so forth, they're, they're, they're sort of broken up into lots of little areas where they live. This is another way of, of showing you the map. Uh, it's what some people describe as a, an archipelago or, or a succession of, of little bits which don't create the possibility or the easy possibility of what some people would describe as a contiguous Palestinian state. Just as importantly, if, if I go back a map, you can see that the whole brown bit on the right is what connects up to the border with Jordan, uh, with the River Jordan, and that is all under Israeli control. So the, if that bit remains so, and the Palestinians didn't have that, the Palestinians wouldn't have a, an independent border. So that gives you, I think, an idea of where we are today, how, how people live today. Now, o- over the last 25 years or so, there's been a peace process in progress, as you know, led by successive United States administrations, The process has been attempting to secure a peace agreement between Israeli and Palestinian leaders, leading to a creation of a Palestinian state. And that Palestinian state, as I said, would be the Gaza Strip and that whole West Bank area. But during the period of the peace process, successive Israeli governments have settled about 550 to 600,000, Danny will tell us the exact amount, Israeli citizens on Palestinian land. That's in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, Land that the international community have traditionally accepted as the basis for a future Palestinian state. This is what begs the, the serious questions. If the state of Israel is genuinely pursuing peace, 
Why is it intent on settling its citizens on land that it would have to return? Why is it spending tens of millions of dollars every year on building projects of housing and infrastructure, roads and so forth, that would be unrecoverable? Cynics would say that this is because Israel is not interested in making peace. It has no genuine intention of creating a Palestinian state, but instead intends to take over the whole of the West Bank, creating an Israel from the River Jordan all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. Given the nature of public debate in the current election campaign in Israel, this is not entirely far-fetched. There are plenty of members of the governing coalition who've publicly stated their opposition to a Palestinian state, let alone one that would be based, as the international community desires, on the pre-1967 borders. Leading Israeli politicians have in the last week advocated even the annexation of large tracts of the West Bank to secure them as permanent Israeli territory once and for all. And this may well, in fact, end up being a policy of the next Israeli government. So settlement building is continuing apace, not just within the existing settlements. New outposts are being established every year in the West Bank. And despite international criticism, even from Israel's closest ally, the United States, the process continues, often funded by donations from the United States, supported by tax breaks for U.S. citizens who make these kinds of donations. So given the rate of this settlement development, it's hard to find any international political figure who genuinely believes in the Israeli government's intent to seek peace with the Palestinians based on the 1967 borders, maybe with some land swaps, with a capital in East Jerusalem. And the rhetoric of the current Israeli election campaign, combined with these maps, uh, tell a story, and I think you'd have to be a peculiarly credulous individual to believe a different story. Which brings me to my second point, Israel's waning support in the international community. In November, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, apparently frustrated with the lack of any progress with the peace process because, as he puts it, of Israel's continued settlement policies, went to the General Assembly of the United Nations in order to try and secure observer status for a Palestinian state. Now, in the vote, some 138 countries of the world voted in favor, 41 abstained, and only eight countries of the 187 in the voting process apart from Israel, voted against. These countries were the Marshall Islands, Palau, Nauru, and Micronesia, four tiny island states in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, Panama, the Czech Republic, Canada, and the United States. This is what is left of the international support for the State of Israel when it really needs it. It's hard to think of a more isolated country in the world apart from Iran and North Korea. And for Israel to be able to rely on the support of, rely neither on the support of the UK, France, or Germany, or even the Netherlands on this issue, is a rather dismal sign. So when Netanyahu announced the building of further settlements as a punishment for the Palestinians going to the UN for observer status, Condemnation instantly appeared from none other than the US, Canadian, and Czech diplomats who felt that their support in the UN vote had been betrayed. So where does this leave Israel? 
Well, if it continues its settlement policies and refuses to accept the international parameters of the peaceful two-state solution, then I believe the process of Israel's delegitimization, moral, political, legal, the thing it fears the most, will continue to develop apace. What are the alternatives? Well, there's a plausible alternative to a two-state solution, and it's a one-state solution where everyone, Jews and Palestinians, live together and are equal citizens in the same country. But this leads to the Jews being in a minority, an outcome unlikely to be plausible to Jewish Israelis and advocates of a Jewish state. Some Israelis are now advocating a one-state solution, but they would rather like to leave Gaza behind so they can ensure the Jewish majority, which is not likely to appeal to the outside world or obviously the Palestinians. So if it's not a two-state solution or a one-state solution, what do we call what's left, the current status quo? If Israel does not allow any prospect of statehood, freedom, genuine self-governance for the Palestinians, and with Israeli citizens having markedly different rights and standards of living to their Palestinian counterparts, and with Israel running out of friends on the international stage, the situation, I'm afraid, will inevitably lead to accusations from some countries in the world that this situation is one of apartheid. And that means that those countries will call for Israel's increasing isolation, in time, it will mean no more World Cups, no more Olympics. Um, and my final point should be just as worrying for Israel. There are now so many settlers in East Jerusalem in the West Bank that even if an Israeli government wanted to make peace and withdraw hundreds of thousands of settlers back to Israel, it looks almost impossible to do. Every year, more and more settlers are becoming army officers, policemen, judges, politicians, the very people who will, if the time comes, have to supervise orchestrate and legitimize the withdrawal of settlers from their home and their lands. The more settlers there are, the harder it will be to do, and it'll be harder for an Israeli government to be elected who advocates a withdrawal. Turkeys do not vote for Christmas, as they say in Britain. So that's my conclusion. It looks straightforward. I think it's pretty obvious when you look at the maps that the two-state solution is disappearing the one-state solution is hardly going to be popular in Israel, and the support for Israel is going downwards, not upwards. I think in the long term this leads, tragically, that Israel is heading towards its own destruction, and that's why I support this motion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, William. Our next speaker uh, is Danny Diane. He's chairman of the Yesha Council <laughs> of Jewish Communities in Judea and Samaria. Previously, he served on the steering committee that reconstituted the Yesha Council after its failure to prevent the 2005 Gaza disengagement. Uh, and during his tenure as chairman, appropriately enough, a greater focus is being placed on what... Uh, in Hebrew is called Hasbara, public diplomacy, both in Israel and overseas, which is why happily Danny is here. Danny. Thank you very much. First of all, I would like to apologize for my less than perfect English with the heavy Argentinian accent. When I came to Heathrow yesterday, the guy at the immigration told me what's the purpose of my visit, pleasure or business. I taught him to give a lecture, so he told me, you can go in, but you have to promise you won't talk about the Falklands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect 
I am going to speak about a much more inflammatory issue than the Falklands. Um, I beg you to put aside all the stereotypes you may have and uh, all the demonization you have been exposed to in the media and all the prejudices and uh, think everything, doubt everything. I could choose the easy way to prove that the motion is wrong. The easy way is uh, that should it be right that Israel is destroying its, uh, itself with its settlements policy, I would expect an over overwhelming support for settlements in Arab countries. But we don't, of course. But that's the, that is too easy. Look, if it were right, you can justify a motion like that on two grounds. On the moral ground, you could suggest that Israel is eroding its moral standing. And I hear that argument with its settlement policy. Or on strategic grounds, Israel is making itself more, more vulnerable with its settlements policy. But the fact is that neither of those two arguments is true. I would like to start with the moral one because, in my opinion, is the more important. In it, and that in which more disinformation and defamation is being spread. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, call it whatever way you like, is a peculiar one. You cannot compare it, for instance, with the Israeli-Egyptian uh, 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 dispute. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a conflict like not, no other one in the world, in the sense that there are two ethnic groups, Jews and Palestinians, that have their beliefs, their historical narratives. And I dare to say, even if I'm criticized by some of my colleagues, that both are sincere. I'm not saying they're, I, I, I don't want to judge if they are right or wrong. Both are sincere. I feel that Zionism is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. I am deeply touched by Hebron in Judea and by Safed in Galilee, in the pre in the first one in the post-67 Israel, the first one in the pre-67 Israel too. And Mahmoud Abbas is deeply touched by both, by Hebron and by Safed. He too is deeply touched by both. I see Zionism as the national liberation movement of the Jewish people, and they see it sincerely as a 19th century colonialist endeavor. Israel, not the settlements, because they consider themselves the natives. And us, the Afrikaners that came to usurp that, their land. Now, how do you resolve such a dispute? There is no other dispute like that in the world. You could suggest that partition, the so-called two states, is the just solution. Maybe. But what happens when one side accepts partition? And we saw the maps, the, the partition proposed in 1947 with 
improbable borders for the Jewish state and without Jerusalem. We, and we, we, I, I, I wasn't born that, that time, but we, the Jews, went out to the squares of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Haifa to, to dance, to dance horror in the squares. And they attacked us that, that very same night, not in order to get a better partition, in order to annihilate us. Until 1967, from 1947 to 1967, the Arabs, the Palestinians, had the opportunity to sign a peace treaty with Israel along the Green Line. But instead, in 1964, they established the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, to liberate Tel Aviv, not to liberate Hebron. And then they attacked in order again to annihilate Israel. Now, I want you to listen very attentively what I'm going to say now, because in my subjective opinion, it's sheer logic and ethics. You cannot go to square one after such an act. When you deny, when you reject partition and attack the other side in order to take it all by force, you lost the moral ground to demand partition. By the way, it was done again in the year 2000, when our Prime Minister Ehud Barak proposed partition in Camp David to Yasser Arafat with President Bill Clinton in Camp David. Yasser Arafat, as the leader of the Palestinians, not only rejected it, but three months later, he launched the most vicious terrorist attack of the modern era, the so-called Second Intifada. So from a moral ground, we came back to our land rightfully. We were ready to relinquish the most sacred parts, the most important parts of our patrimony, of our national patrimony. But, going, but, but the Palestinians rejected it. They could have a state. They could part divide the land. They decided that the rule of the game is by force. And they, we prevailed using the rules of the game they decided upon. From a moral point of view, our presence in Judea and Samaria and the so-called West Bank, erroneously called West Bank, is morally impeccable. Yes, in a 100-year war, we made mistakes. And we made injustices. Yes, of course, you cannot make, you cannot in a 100 years so bloody conflict not make any injustice. We did our share of injustices. But in the moral balance between Jews and Palestinians, we, got, we have the upper hand by far. And we have an inalienable right to be and to live in Judea and Samaria. Now you could say, okay, it is just. You have, any, you have a moral justification to live and to build houses and gardens and wineries in Judea and Samaria, but it is not wise. It's a stupid policy. That will bring, even if you, you, you will die, you will commit suicide with justice. But no, the contrary is the truth.
I heard Mr. Ziegart uh, talking about the, 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 in, the, what will happen if the two-state solution does not crystallize. And this is the second preconception I beg you to free yourself of. The two-state solution, the two-states formula does not solve the conflict in the Middle East. On the contrary, it will aggravate it. I live in a small community in Western Samaria named Maale Shomron. From my home in Maale Shomron, every morning I look at Tel Aviv as if it were in the palm of my hands. The Azrieli Towers, I see that the Azrieli Towers, the icon, the new icon of Tel Aviv, are in its place, in their place, and then I go to work knowing that uh, everything is okay in Tel Aviv. The thought that if instead of my wife, my daughter, and myself, in Maale Shomron, in that very same window, an independent Palestinian state will be looking and yearning for Jaffa, looking and yearning for the places that they consider their national patrimony from high above, because in the map you, also, you don't see the, the, the topography. By the way, much closer than the distance from Heathrow to London much higher than Heathrow, of course, to London, completely dominating the, the landscape. The thought that that will bring the Palestinians to accept partition as a fait accompli, it will not tempt them to launch a new aggression to wipe out Israel from the map, is in the best case naive, in the worst case, I prefer not to characterize it. Without Judea and Samaria, without the high hills of Judea and Samaria, an uninterrupted Islamic fundamentalist territory that starts in Kabul, Afghanistan, and ends in Tel Aviv, Israel, without any natural barrier exists. Only a, a, a fence will, will separate Tel Aviv from the, ter from the Islamic-dominated territory that ends in Kabul, Afghanistan. That is suicide. That is suicide. Now, <clears throat> We did that experiment. Why should we guess? We did that experiment in the summer, in the infamous summer of 2005. I think it was Albert Einstein that once said that if you do the same experiment twice and expect different results, then you are no scientist. Maybe he used a, a, a more offending word, offensive word. The experiment was the withdrawal from Gaza. We evacuated every single Jew from there, civilian, 
or military. A de facto independent Palestinian state was established in Gaza, and we all know the consequence. The consequence is that every single penny, every single cent, every single euro and dollar and pound that was contributed to the newly formed de facto independent state, Palestinian state in Gaza, was used to amass armaments against Israel, to form a new launching pad for an aggression against Israel, not for highways, not for schools, not for hospitals, not for universities. The difference, and this is my summing, <coughs> my concluding remark, the difference is that Israel can survive an Iranian proxy state in Gaza because the surround, because uh, uh, the limit, the, the, the surrounding areas are not very densely populated. Uh, of course, uh, uh, it's not a good situation, but we can we can somehow cope with it. The same thing in Judea and Samaria, and it will be inevitably the same thing, inevitably. By coup d'etat, by gun or by ballot, the Hamas will take control of the new Palestinian state, will endanger the very physical existence of the state of Israel. Therefore, the settlements do not endanger Israel's existence, but guarantee it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danny. Uh, next speaker is Daniel Levy. He's the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's also the senior fellow at the New America Foundation. Uh, he's a member of the board of the New Israel Fund, as well as a former advisor in the Israeli Prime Minister's office and a member of the Israeli team that was at one point negotiating with the Palestinians. Daniel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim, and <clears throat> I'd like to thank the organizers of Intelligence Squared and everyone here for joining us tonight. Monty Python's Meaning of Life, a film. It contains a scene, there's an obese chap, really a caricature of obesity, Mr. Creosote. He walks into a restaurant, apparently it's his regular local. He orders everything on the menu and a Jeroboam of champagne. After all this, the waiter offers him just one wafer-thin mint to round off the meal. He momentarily hesitates. Then Mr. Creosalt consumes said mint. He promptly explodes. For me, that is the danger that settlement overreach poses to Israel. Eventually, it will explode in our faces. Just one more wafer-thin outpost. Just a little E1. I will now devote my remaining remarks to those of you not familiar with Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. <laughs> Look, there is a certain powerful logic to the idea that Israel as we know it simply cannot coexist with the relentless continuation and expansion of settlements in contravention of international law. Let's look at it like this. Imagine there's a triangle made up of three sides of the basic choices that Israel faces. 
One is a state with a Jewish character, drawn, amongst other things, from a clear majority of its citizenry being Jewish. The second line is an Israel that is recognizably democratic, observing democratic norms, respecting democratic rights, adhering to the international conventions it signed, investing that democracy with meaning. And the third is an Israel that has all the territory, the territory of the biblical home, if you like, the territory now under its control, the territory across which settlements are spread, as those previous maps showed. But in fact, Israel can only have two sides of this triangle. It can be democratic and Jewish in character, but not have all the territory. Or it can have all the territory and choose to give up either its democratic character or its Jewish character. For with the territory comes its inhabitants, and they can either be accorded democratic rights or denied those rights. It's a relatively simple equation. I'd prefer to say it's irrefutable and send us all home early, but let's dig a little deeper. There are those who accept this basic premise, who accept, yes, two states. I'm not sure we'll hear that position tonight, but you hear it often. But they then say, chill out about settlements, the chill out camp. They're just not a big deal. You exaggerate their significance. They can always be removed. There are bigger problems. If you want to do two states, what about the historical narratives? What about rejectionism on both sides? Security. Really? The settlements? I would argue the opposite. If you're arguing from a two-state perspective, the single most prohibitive factor to achieving a two-state outcome, I would say, is the settlement enterprise. The single biggest practical, on-the-ground driving force toward the indivisibility of this land is the settlements. Even if the built-up area of settlements takes up only a small area, the truth is it's about 1% of the West Bank, but the area under settlement jurisdiction, the municipal and regional settlement councils control the zoning and planning, that's 42.8% of the West Bank. Settlements help define Palestinian access, or actually lack of access, to land, to resources, even to quarries, and Palestinian freedom of movement. And this picture becomes even more stark if one factors in of set, patterns of settlement and land expropriation in Palestinian East Jerusalem, making the viability of a future Palestinian state all the more impossible. And settlements define a cognitive map in people's minds, encouraging the world and the Palestinians to give up on a two-state outcome, or at least consider it a vanishing prospect. There is a variation on the chill-out crowd, which is this, that the two-state model is okay with settlements because it can accommodate any amount of settlement growth. The Palestinians can swallow any deal. Their territory can shrink to whatever enfeebled islet it is willing to be offered, whatever infringement on their resources and sovereignty. Let's not delude ourselves. The Palestinian leadership accepted the idea of a mini-state on 22% of the land, 
not the 43% of the partition plan. If you want to go along with the idea of some element of victor's justice and rejectionists' remorse, I don't think there's much room for further retreat. There is a point at which the aspiration for Palestinian statehood under such limited circumstances becomes less attractive to Palestinians. And the appeal of a one-state democracy carries the day. This is true already for many Palestinians, and settlements bring that day closer for many more. Thanks very much, Tim. What if... No, no, I haven't finished. <laughs> I'm going to use my 25 minutes. No, uh, thanks a lot. But you could say, what if you look beyond the traditional two-state paradigm? Is that the only solution you can come up with? Not one where there's no Israel, but one maybe there's a confederation, maybe something like Belgium, maybe something involving Jordan. I think it's clear that settlement policy reduce the, reduces the prospects of all these alternatives. Why would a Palestine that's part of a confederation or part of something to do with Jordan be any more willing to base itself on atomized islands of land without resources, surrounded, and with security arrangements dictated only by one side? You know, there is a reason that two former Israeli prime ministers, Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert, and Israel's, I guess, cultural icon, Amos Oz, have, have spoken of an approaching reality of South African-style apartheid. But I, as I said, I'm not sure these are going to be the main arguments we're going to hear tonight. So let's not make it easy on ourselves. Let's step out of this comfortable paradigm. What if I am getting it all wrong? What if, like the toy store, settlements are us? There's no difference between pre-67 and post-67. One side of the green line and another side of the green line. That far from destroying Israel, settlement policy simply encapsulates the very essence of what Israel is. After all, Ramat Aviv, Tel Aviv University, is built on the ruins of the Palestinian village of Sheikh Munas. And there's, the list can go on. I can certainly understand that from a Palestinian's experience, such distinctions might well appear to be rather arbitrary and not very relevant. Green line, not green line. And a Palestinian might have rather less interest in whether Israel is destroying itself or not, as compared to, say, whether Palestinian rights and freedoms are able to be exercised. But we don't have Palestinian speakers with us here today. I can't be an advocate for Palestinians. William can't. Messrs. Diane and Glick may enjoy settling Palestinian land, but I don't know if that makes them advocates for the Palestinians. I hope a future debate will invite Palestinians. But, and there is, of course, such a perspective held in the Israeli Zionist discourse that Israel equals settlements, which could render our debate meaningless. And I admit that to some, such a definition of Israel may sound more coherent, more compelling, even more honest. But there's a problem here, because that is not how Israel has defined itself. Israel calls itself a democracy, a Jewish and democratic state. It enshrined these principles in its Declaration of Independence. It is a signatory to international charters that enshrines these principles. The Israel that has embedded itself in the community of nations 
and in the hearts and minds of Jews and others across the world is the democratic Israel. That carries the legitimacy. That is the Israel that has also, on the 67 lines, been recognized by the PLO itself. So unless and until Israel redefines itself, let's say we call it the Jewish empire of greater Israel, until then, that is the standard against which one has to measure whether Israel is destroying itself with settlements or not. There is a democratic recession going on in Israel. I would argue that the settlements drive that democratic recession. It's impossible to sustain a democracy on one side of a green line if you're managing a not-in-democracy on the other. There could be an opening. Maybe this can just be a binational democracy. It's the 21st century, percentages of Jews, percentages of non-Jews, really. This is what we have to bother ourselves with. But again, would that be called Israel? Does it not answer the definition of this debate? I want to finally say the following. And I want to be careful not to turn the oive dial up too high. But I think one can argue that settlement policy is a driving factor in Israel endangering itself, not just in the sense of defining what Israel is, but also in a very real physical sense. That settlements constitute a high-risk strategy for the security and well-being of Israelis and Israel. That settlements are the greatest barrier between Israel and pragmatic policies, between Israel and realistic policies, especially in the reality we face today. Let's just look at it. A new Arab reality in which democratic enfranchisement has come to the fore. A reality in which technological gaps, including Israel's qualitative military edge, are narrowing over time. A reality in which Israel is so dependent on the US, sorry, and the Pacific Island states, in which Palestinian non-violent civil disobedience gathers steam but also in which armed uprisings against oppression have received regional and international support in Syria, Libya, and elsewhere, and in which Israel is losing its legitimacy and experiencing a brain drain at home. In that reality, are settlements not the greatest manifestation of overreach? The reason why we have an Israel without borders? <clears throat> are settlements the way forward? Do they contribute to Israeli security? Or do they threaten to push Israel over the edge? And is this our only future? Is it really a viable future to live by the sword in perpetuity? I'll close by saying this. I, I can see them. There are some speech bubbles coming out of some people's heads. Naive, naive, naive. The man's a defeatist. If we ended the settlements with the Arabs, really accept us? They opposed us before 67, after 67. With them, to live in peace? To me, that's the defeatism. To believe that there is no better future. Are the Palestinians uniquely intolerant? Uniquely impossible to make peace with? 
Are we uniquely destined to be enemies forever? I'd argue that that view is ahistorical, is a misreading of reality, and it's a more than a little bit prejudiced. Unique permanent unreasonableness does not apply to Palestinians or Muslims. It does not apply to Jews or Israelis. If we remove the Casas belly, the burning humiliation of today and tomorrow, will everything still be dictated by the humiliations of yesterday and history? Both peoples can be forward-looking. And to support this motion is to send a message that settlements are taking us to a point of no return. Not a smart strategy for Israel's future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, Caroline Glick is our final speaker. She's a senior contributing editor at the Jerusalem Post newspaper. She's director of the Israel Security Project at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, and she's the senior adjunct fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Caroline. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. It's really a pleasure to be here in London. I think the last time I was here was in 95, and I think that Daniel might have been my soldier then. I can't remember. Um, but uh, I, I, find, uh, I find the whole resolution rather curious. I did just uh, fly in here from uh, Israel, where I live with my children, and uh, I, I think that I'm pretty pro-Israel. Um, but this resolution essentially tells me that in order to be pro-Israel, I have to support the establishment of a Jew-free state uh, for the Palestinians. Um, I have to say that uh, I support the establishment of a state that is going to be, that must be uh, ethnically cleansed of all Jews before uh, the people who are supposed to have that state will agree to independence. I find that uh, crazy. Um, the presence of Jews in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank of the Jordan River, has nothing to do with prospects for peace or lack of pro prospects for peace. Israel has two peace agreements with uh, two neighboring Arab states it's, that have been respected, um, the one with Egypt for nearly 30 years, the one with Jordan since uh, it was signed in 1994. Um, and we signed six agreements with the Palestinians, with the PLO, all six of which they have been in material breach of uh, since the very beginning. Um, but none of uh, those agreements that we signed with the PLO, nor the agreements that we signed with the Jordanians or the Egyptians, were impacted one iota by the presence of Jewish communities beyond Israel's 1949 armistice lines. Um, not one of them uh, was contingent on the absence of those communities. And uh, nobody made that a condition for negotiating with the Jewish state or for recognizing it. Um, so if you think that throwing 500,000 Jews, 350,000 Jews, 650,000 Jews, 720,000 Jews out of their homes and their communities um, is the magic bullet through which we are going to achieve peace, with the Palestinian Arabs, um, you're living in fantasy land. This has not been the case in the past. 
It has not been the case with our Arab neighbors. It has not been the case with our Palestinian neighbors. And there is no reason to, to accept the view that it is the case today. Um, the other argument that we've heard today is that if Jews keep living and building in, Jewish, in, in Judea and Samaria, we're going to end up with a one-state solution in which Jews are a minority. So let's think about this for a second. You're saying that by keeping Jews in Judea and Samaria and in Jerusalem, that somehow or another the Palestinians are going to, and the Israeli Arabs within the 1949's armistice lines, are somehow going to magically bridge the three million person gap between the 6.1 million Jews and the three million Arabs inside of 1949 armistice lines Israel and Judea and Samaria, you don't know how to count. You don't know how to count. Were Israel to absorb Judea and Samaria tomorrow and offer citizenship to all of its Arab residents, Israel would still have a two-thirds Jewish majority. So the very notion that there is a demographic time bomb on Israel's hands is simply untrue. The Central Bureau of Statistics of Israel came out yesterday with its latest data. They found that there is convergence between Jewish birth rates and Arab birth rates, and the Jewish birth rates are trending upwards and have been since 1995, and the Arab birth rates are trending downwards and have since 2000. In fact, this is not just among the Palestinians or among the Israeli Arabs. This is throughout the Arab world. There is a collapse in the Muslim world in fertility rates, and there is a massive increase in Jewish fertility rates. Israel has three children per woman among Jews, and it has 3.5 uh, children per woman among Muslims inside a pre-1949 armistice lines Israel and 3.2 children per woman in Judea and Samaria among the Arab population in the area. So that the whole trend of the demographic model is completely the opposite of what all of these uh, uh, experts on Israel's demographic uh, dire circumstances would have us all believe. It's simply a matter of not counting properly. Now, the truth of the matter is none of this is important because the whole issue of whether or not the settlements in Judea and Samaria are somehow or another going to destroy Israel or not is not about demography, and it's not about peace. It's about civil rights. It's about Jewish civil rights. What they are saying, essentially, is that Jews should not be allowed to live there just because they're Jews. Now, why should Jews be allowed to live in London, live in Germany, live in San Francisco, but not be allowed to live in Judea? Why? And in Jerusalem. Where does this come from? They want to talk so much about Palestinian rights. Let's talk about Jewish rights for a second. You're saying that you so support a Palestinian state that is going to be inherently bigoted and that Jews aren't allowed to even live there, that they have to all be ethnically cleansed first before these people can even deign to accept sovereignty. What kind of state do you want to establish? What kind of nonsense is this? This is a racket. This is a racket. Jews don't have civil rights. We're not allowed to live wherever we have property rights to build just because we're Jewish? And this is a moral argument? This is a reasonable argument? This is establishing what exactly? A state based upon ethnic purity? This is where we've come to in 2013 in the Western world? Where are the liberal values that are being advanced by this cause of a Jew-free Palestine? Somebody can explain this one to me? Because I don't understand it. I don't understand it. 
I don't understand. I went to Columbia. I went to Harvard. I just can't get it. And let me just say one more thing about that. I can talk from now. I've heard illegal Palestinian land, all of this. I'm not going to have a discussion here about sovereignty. I talk about that in my book. It's out. It's going to be coming out, uh, hopefully at the end of the year, Random House. You can all uh, look for it and buy multiple copies. Um, but if we want to, we can talk about Israel's national rights and our legal rights to these areas. They are very strong, and in fact, they're incontrovertible in, under international law. But we're talking about civil rights. We're talking about civil rights. And it's not simply that it's morally repugnant to tell Jews that we're not allowed to live anywhere we want to and buy property anywhere that will be sold it. It's also true that this is a failed proposition. It's been tried twice, and it's failed twice. The British tried it. You tried it in 1939 and in 1940 with the White Paper and the subsequent acts of parliament that denied Jews the right to buy land in the vast majority of the Palestinian mandate that the British government was legally bound by the mandate of the League of Nations to allow close Jewish settlement of throughout. You abrogated that right in material breach of the mandate of the League of Nations in 1939 and 1940, and how did that work out? It was done at the time in May 1939 in order to appease the Palestinian Arabs, who at that point were allied with the Nazis and were conducting a terrorist war not only against the Jews of the Palestine Mandate, but against the British mandatory authorities. And in an attempt to appease Haj Amin al-Husseini, who by that time was in Baghdad stirring up a pro-Nazi coup d'etat that took place in 1941, the British said that the Jews have no national rights, and we actually didn't mean that we supported the establishment of a Jewish state when we said we did in 1917 in the Balfour Declaration. Whoops. And you know what happened? You know what happened? There was a pro-Nazi coup in Iraq, and Britain, that was pinned down in Libya, had to go and invade Iraq in order to take it down. And then they had to invade Iran, because in Iran you had preachers in the mosque saying, hey, Hitler is the second coming of Muhammad. And that's what they did. And this is what they got for appeasement. They got... King Farouk in Egypt supporting the Nazis. They got the Iraqis supporting the Nazis. They got a Nazi party in Syria. It didn't work. And by the way, they did it at the time that what? They abrogated Jewish civil rights in the middle of the Holocaust. Morally repugnant and strategically ridiculous. It didn't work. We tried it again, as Danny said, in 2005, and what did we get? 8,000 Jews thrown out of their homes, 24 communities in Gaza, raised to the ground and transferred to the Palestinians. What did we get? We got Hamas in charge. It wasn't just an abrogation of Jewish civil rights. It ended up becoming an abrogation of Palestinian civil rights. Just ask the Christians in Gaza. Just last month, they went to Bethlehem for the the Christmas celebrations, and they came to Israel, and they said, don't make us go home. Can we please have asylum here? Can we save us? Pretty soon, just weeks from now, there's not going to be any more ancient Christian community in Gaza. But whose civil rights are being impacted here? Not just ours, not just the Jews, but the Arabs as well. The women in Gaza, who are now being increasingly intimidated, say you have to run around wearing a big hat over your head. Or how about those summer camps that are being firebombed by Hamas because they have girls and boys together? Whose civil rights are advanced by the expropriation illegally of land from Jews and the transfer to the Palestinians? Nobody. 
Nobody. I tell you what, this is what we're talking about here. You want to know what we're really talking about here when we talk about throwing all these Jews off the lands that we bought, that belonged to us? We are talking about trying to find common ground with terrorist organizations that are mandated to enact a genocide of the Jewish people. Just read the Hamas covenant. Just see what they say. They call not for only the annihilation, the obliteration, in their words, of the Jewish state, but they call for the genocide of world Jewry. And to try to find common ground with these murderers or with Holocaust deniers like PLO chief Mahmoud Abbas, we have people like Danny Levy and Mr. Sieghart saying, what? Oh, well, we can agree that there's a subset of Jews that we also dislike, right? Let's call them the settlers and say that they're destroying all prospects for peace. Not Hamas, not Fatah, that are throwing missiles at the homes of now 3.5 million Jews are in their range from Gaza. No, 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 no. It's because Jews are, have the temerity to build on land that they own. That's the problem. We can sit down and talk to Hamas because we, like them, hate Jews. Now, we don't hate all Jews, but a subset. And we're going to blame everything, all the pathologies of the Arab world, all the pathologies of the Palestinians, on them. It's their fault. They're going to block peace. Not true. Again, to return to the beginning at the end of my remarks. Israel has two peace treaties, one with Jordan, one with Egypt, that are just fine. Thank you very much for asking. And they were signed, sealed, and delivered, and maintained while Israel was expanding the Jewish presence in Judea and Samaria and Gaza. We signed six agreements with the PLO, again, none of which they've maintained or adhered to, but they were all signed. While we were building in Judea and Samaria, how is it that suddenly this is the obstacle to peace? Because you can now find common ground when you all want to delegitimize Israel. Oh, we can all agree that we hate these specific Jews and they should all be thrown out of their houses. This is a moral atrocity. It is morally reprehensible. It is strategically idiotic. And this resolution should be opposed by all of you unanimously. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.